This conference will now be recorded. It's Tuesday, October 20th, 2015. This is the Reading Odyssey's discussion group on Livy's books, uh, Livy's books 22 to 23. Um, welcome, everyone. Really great to have uh, everybody calling in tonight and joining in on the conversation. Um, we'll, um, we're going to start as we often do with uh, favorite passages that tends to lead us into some really good conversations. Before I do that, I just wanted to check in and see if um, if there were any questions or any um, issues in the reading, anything uh, making it uh, difficult or challenging to, um, to read the Livy. Okay, I will uh, take that as a no. So let, let's get started. Um, these were obviously action-packed books, especially book um, 22, a lot going on there. So um, who would like to kick us off? Um, Harry, why don't I call on you? Do you have a, a passage or two that you can share with us that you particularly liked? I did. I thought it was very enlightening that um, Carthage, who seemed by the nature of their geographical, where they're located, uh, the geography of having to resupply Hannibal or how to communicate with Hannibal, that it would seem to me that they would uh, want to have naval superiority. And and then yeah. well, I was struck in book 22, um, I think it's uh, uh, page 86 in the book. It's uh, 19. Okay, hold on. Just a second. Uh, Let's uh, yeah, give everybody a chance. Yeah. Passage 19, which is halfway okay. down the page. Yeah. And he talks about the disaster that unfolds at the Ebro River. As, as the Romans attack, the Roman fleet comes in and just routes the, the Carthaginians, um, leaving them their naval support in a shambles. Yeah, and then later on, when you get to book twenty-three, they had an an interesting passage about the naval commanders um, defecting. Yeah, so they have these continual problems with their navy, and and if they're going to, you know, to to fight the Romans, they've got to have a strong navy because of the, their lines of communication and and all that. I found that was very interesting that their Navy situation just seems to deteriorate rather than them fixing it. And then when they sent uh, Naval reinforcements over um, at the end of uh, 23, they uh, book 23, uh, the Navy forces that they send, they, they immediately pull them up on the beach basically and put a palisade around them so that they have no freedom of maneuver. They're, they're basically on a beach with a palisade around them, making them vulnerable to not only a land attack, but a sea attack. I, I thought that was very interesting. I, that was fascinating for me. Yeah. It is surprising, given the historic strength, although the Romans had beat their navy, I guess, in the previous war. Yeah, um, and the, the way the Romans beat them, my understanding was, reading some other assorted books, was... Um, the, the Romans had larger boats and they could put more infantry on the boats. 
So what they, their tactics were, they would come up to the Carthaginian boats and they had these devices that they made what they could put on the Carthaginian boats when they came up beside them, which held the Carthaginian boats captive. So they were, and then once they were locked with the Roman boats, the Roman superior infantry force would, would come across into the Carthaginian boats and basically kill all the, kill them and take the, take the boats captive. Yeah. So that was in the first Punic war. And that is, and I, assume from what I'm reading that, that that has continued. So the Romans have basically gotten naval dominance and the Carthaginians don't seem to fix it. Right. It just it perpetuates. It just degrades their position strategy wise. The other that be part oh sorry I'm sorry, Harry. Now go ahead. Who was that? Is that... Uh, uh, real quick, the other thing I found fascinating okay. was in book twenty two, um uh, part 39, Fabius's speech regarding strategy to counter Hannibal's uh, victories. I, I yeah. found that fascinating. I love that. Yeah, let's go look at that for a second. That's important. All right, so let's get the, the page number there for Fabius's speech. Oh, let me find it real um, quick. It's on page, it starts 109, 108. Yeah, 108. Yeah. Do you have any particular section you'd like to read out loud? Well, no particular part. It's just that he's basically cautioning against uh, blind, wild aggression. He's, he's, he's counseling them to, to have a strategic approach, to, to look at this yeah. as a long, long way, a long-term way of approaching Hannibal. Rather than just, hey, everyone get on the horses, let's just go charge. And, and he's saying that that's the recipe for disaster. And um, he gives so a let very... me just jump in and read mm-hmm. the middle of the page, uh, middle of the second paragraph. Varro was out of control before he stood for the councilship. This is the the new the new council. And again, during his campaign for it, and is so now, before even setting eyes on his camp and his enemies. And when a man causes such a stir with blustering talk of battles and warfare amongst civilians, imagine what he will do when surrounded by young soldiers and in a situation where action follows hard on the heels of talk. But if he engages immediately as he threatens to do, then either I have no knowledge of military tactics or of the nature of this war and of this enemy, or else there's going to be another place more famous for our defeats than Trasimene. And scripting great stuff. speech. Yeah, yeah it's I, a great I, this speech. This is Jim. I, I actually had uh, looked at that, that that whole section, 38 and 39, caught my eye Yeah. as well. There's a, there's a line in there on um, uh, section 38, uh, the second graph, yeah. where he says, he would not formulate plans before the appropriate time for the situation dictated the strategy for men. Men could not impose strategy on the situation. And I, I think yeah. that what I, what struck me about uh, book 22 is the, the uh, advent of, I mean, there was always personalities strongly altering the course of, of, of the drama in here, but it, there were a lot yeah. of personalities in book, <laughs> yes. book 22 uh, really shaping things. <laughs> And a lot of a lot of people keep track of right, various praetors and councils and <laughs> I'm sure and comings and goings. 
Um, yeah. But, yeah. yeah. And there was one, if I could just continue a little bit here, speaking of personalities, what I found interesting about um, this reading yeah. is that how many of these personalities still exist today <laughs> in various <laughs> forms. And one I just want to call your attention to, it just struck me as kind of funny, which was in um, it's on page 95. Um, yeah. He's talking about, uh, it's section 25 and 26. He's talking about someone named uh, Gaius Terentius Varro. Right. He says, and for, for all the world, this description of him reminded me of Donald Trump for some reason. <laughs> yeah, and so let's look at it. Read us this, this section that reminds me. Well, 26, um, chapter, so it's 26. As a yeah. young man, Varro inherited from his father the money that had come from this sort of business, which he called a sordid business. And it gave him the confidence to hope for a more respectable position in the world. Public life and the courts appealed to him, and by using a noisy rhetoric on behalf of disreputable individuals and causes, and against the property and reputations of decent people, he achieved notoriety with the masses, and then civil office. <laughs> and I read that, I was like, God, we are living with that today, you know? And um, so as, as distant as all this was, uh, it seems like human nature remains constant. Yeah. yeah, that's certainly one lesson of reading these texts. Hey, I wanted to, there was someone who jumped in earlier. Was that Therese? Was oh, yeah, I was just, when he was talking about the Navy and, and how it was surprising that Carthage didn't seem to to have a very yeah. strong Navy, I just, I wonder if that um, was a consequence of the way the Carthaginian um, army was composed and how they were constantly drawing from, you know, people outside of their own culture and, and facing a lot of defections over and over and over. And when you, you know, it's one thing when you're on the ground being commanded, but it's another when you're entrusting ships to, to people who may not be trusted. And I wonder if that had something to do with it. Hmm. Interesting. Can I jump in a little bit? This is Ed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Go ahead, Ed. I think the Carthaginian naval power was absolutely decimated in the First Punic War, where they initially had an overwhelming advantage in that Rome had practically no navy whatsoever. Rome built fleets and lost them almost as <laughs> as rapidly and as quickly as they lost armies in uh, the Second Punic War. And it's the resolve that they exhibit in simply, you know, I mean, they would build a fleet of 200 ships, send that, it would get wrecked in a storm with very few survivors, and they would simply build another fleet. Yeah. Uh, the way they did it supposedly, is that they found a beached Carthaginian vessel that had washed ashore on a beach, um, duplicated it, and in order to train their rowers, they had them row sand. And That's cool. Where's that them. coming from? Um, actually, gold, gold were these uh, Punic Wars. Okay. It's not in this Livy, but this Livy doesn't cover the first war, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Thanks for adding that, Ed. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, Teresa, it's an interesting thought that you had. I think that, um, and there may be something to that. You know, I don't, uh, interesting logic that you're, that you're applying there. Teresa, did you have a, a good pa passage you particularly liked? Or? Um, well, kind of, first of all, chapter 22 was a complete assault on the reader. I just, it was so violent, and I just, it really prompted a lot of thought about, I always try to put myself in the shoes of, of other people that I don't, you know, know or understand, 
And and yeah. just thinking about both the conquerors and the conquered, like what, how can these people endure year after year of, of such violence all the time? And it just made me think about yeah. kind of the conquering spirit and wondering what drove Hannibal. And then I was um, kind of going back to, and I, I didn't write a book number, but on page 20, 127, um, talking okay, about the on, motivation. Hold on. Okay, hold on, <laughs> hold on. One twenty-seven. Okay, gotcha. Talking about the motivations of Hannibal, and I'm I'm wondering, you know, what drove him? Was he blinded by his hatred of Rome, um, and that he would carry on at any cost, or was he driven or motivated to avenge his father's loss of Sicily during the first Punic War? And then, you know, a little bit later on, um, when you get to oh, here it is, Book Twenty-Two, Chapter Fifty-Eight, One Twenty-Seven, how, you know, after the Battle of Cannae. He ignored, um, and I don't know how to pronounce his name, but Maharbal, I think it was, who was prompting yeah. him to immediately go to Rome. And, and instead, right. Hannibal just kind of sat back Kicked and back. relished. Yeah, he relished the you know self-congratulating of himself and the troops and, and going through the, the ruins, you know, pillaging or, you know, gathering up. Um, oh, what do they call them? I, I can't think, but when, you know, whatever is, is left to be had, the spoils of the war. Um, yeah. And then later, you know, the wintering in Capua was completely contrary to, you know, someone who was driven by, I guess, what you could maybe call more noble purposes. And so, this is really long, and I'm sorry, but I just, I wonder, you know, what drives a conquering spirit? Like, I, I don't, I can't comprehend that. And it reminded me of what you said, Phil, how you read the, the classics for perspective, a different perspective, and I'm usually really good. Um, maybe because of what I do about putting myself in other shoes and, and seeing perspectives. And I'm just baffled by it. And I just wonder, I mean, a lot of you have a lot more experience reading classics and you've read a lot about, you know, different battles. And I'd like to know what other people think about that. Yeah, well, it's a good, it's a good question. And I'm sure there's a lot of point of view on that. And Livy does supply us at least with his perspective on what motivated Hannibal, but, what uh, with anyone? What, what is that, Phil? I haven't been able to figure Bruce. it out either. What motivates Hannibal? So what well, does Livy say? It sounds like Bruce. Well, I, I, I'm happy to say, but Bruce, you wanted to jump in. No, I, I just joined the call, so don't, I'm not I'm ready to jump in yet. <laughs> well, welcome, Bruce. Uh, since you joined late, you have to answer the question that you don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, on the very page that uh, Therese pointed out, page 127, chapter 58, Hannibal, um, I mean, Livy says, his war with the Romans was not a fight to the death, but a struggle for honor and power, he, Hannibal, told them. As his ancestors had capitulated before the valor of Rome, so his goal now was to see others in turn capitulating before his success and valor. Accordingly, he concluded he was giving the prisoners the opportunity to ransom themselves, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, and earlier uh, in last month's reading, um, uh, Hannibal's father, um, I'm getting that right? Yeah, his father, you know, taught him from the earliest days of his, you know, childhood uh, to hate the Romans. Um, so, I, th you know, I think, I think it's a sense of honor and power. I mean, that's... What I see, Andre, would you like to jump in on that and add your perspective on what motivated Hannibal? 
Wow. Uh, I mean, that's that's what I was thinking. Right yeah. at the beginning, you know, he supposedly swore at age nine to, uh, you know, hate Rome forever. So, um, you know, but 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 in in book twenty one, it's interesting that Livy sets up a lot of the politics of of Carthage and its government, and yeah. I think that's I think now I'm starting to realize that's why that was so important because we're asking this question now, and it's like. Why did he, you know, at that time, I was like, why is he spending so much time in Carthage in Book 21? Well, <clears throat> there's a lot of politics going on there, and he, he goes back to that, uh, I think, in Book 23. And uh, there's a real strong, you know, hawkish party in Carthage that wants to expand, just like, you know, a lot of civilizations in the Med, in the Mediterranean. So um, Hannibal's just part of that, and... Uh, you know, this might be Carthage's apex, you know, it might be their zenith, you know, they're, they're real, like, they, they, they got to do something with it. They got a lot of uh, power and influence, and they're going to just see how far they can go, I guess. And Hannibal's this very ambitious person whom Livy kind of admires to some extent, but then, yeah. you know, also the Romans really revile too. So he's just one of those real hard to you know, hard to avoid person, uh, pop, uh, sorry, uh, personalities, you know, he's just really, really interesting. The Romans just wrote and wrote about him. Um, Andre, did you have a point of view on Jim's comment earlier about personalities and the council Varro reminding him of Trump or whatever? Did, uh, (laughs) (laughs) well, I, uh, Kind of staying out of the political uh, arena here, but uh, no, that, that is a good point. I mean, you know, that does bring up personality, and it may, it matters. It really does. Uh, and um, you know, a lot of people saw Hannibal, and and I just remembering in book twenty three how these people all wanted to see him. You know, even even though he was a conqueror, you know, they still wanted to see him. It was just, you know, so. Um, he used that. He used everything he had, you know, his personality, his his intelligence, his uh, diplomacy, you know. I mean, this guy had a lot of talents, and, yeah. um, you know, you well, can't let's talk, let's talk so, about, Andre, that moment that Therese brought up, which is right after the Battle of Cannae, where um, Hannibal doesn't go forward to sack Rome. What's uh, what's your perspective? What's going on there? And and then you know, I think it's one of the more interesting moments, and in, frankly, in the whole war. What, uh, yeah. What's happening? Why why did Hannibal hang back? Well, I, you know, I and I, I want to get other people involved in this. But like yeah, I don't know for that. sure. I you know that is that's you know that's the Stalingrad right of, uh, of World War II, so to speak. It's it's that moment where oh, if he only you know did Except this or if he, he only did that. Except he won the battle, right? You know? He what? won that battle, right? Yeah, right. yeah. Unlike and, the Nazis, and, yeah. Well, I I was talking you know I was talking to my students about this actually because we were reading some passages related you know not written by Livy. He's a little too difficult, but um, we we're reading some other Latin passages and that. And 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 he got he got lured. We all kind of sort of the consensus was he got lured by the plunder in Campania. You know, thinking, well, I can always get mm-hmm. Rome, but I got to get the breadbasket in Campania and get all the grain and get all the you know 
Capua is the second largest city in Italy, and you know it's 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 a great city. So why don't we just use that up, and then we'll go get Rome. That's that was my kind of you know uh, what is Point it? Yeah, yeah. My, that, that, that's consensus I got with with my kiddos, you know. So let's see what other people think. Sean, buddy, let me call on you, and then I know someone wanted. I'll get back to the, the maybe that was Nan, but Sean, did you do you have a point of view on that or uh, favorite passage you want to share? Yeah. Yeah. So I I used to have daughters who uh, swam, you know, in in leagues over the summer, and uh, as little kids, I noticed that the difference between the kids who won and the kids who didn't is that the kids who won were the ones who swam all the way to the wall, and the yeah. uh, the ones who lost <laughs> were the ones who kind of coasted in. And everybody who works for me, I think, knows the mantra now, swim to the wall, uh, which is I think so many times people get most of the way there. I mean, I've I've done fundraise rounds where, you know, we got into a competitive battle and then we just kind of blew it and, uh, you know, and yeah. just tried to end it too soon. And um, and so I, I feel like, you know, talked about his army getting soft, um, you know, as they uh, as they lived it up over the winter there. Um, I think he was just tired. Like, I think, you know, he just, there was a yeah. chance to really enjoy success probably for the first time, um, yeah. you know, in that campaign, they, they had successes, but they never kind of rested on them. And this was a chance to rest on success and yeah, he wanted to do it. So I don't know that it was the plunder so much, um, for him personally as it was for his army, but, um, but I think he just failed yeah. to swim to the wall. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Good. What about you, Bruce? I can call you now. You've been with us for a few moments. Yeah. Do you have a point? I would have to agree with what everyone's been saying. I mean, I, the books, uh, Libby talks so much about how exhausted and depleted and starved and the, yeah. the um, Carthaginians were from all the Fabian tactics and, and um, you know, having to run around with no, with no uh, provisions. So, this is their first chance to go at it. You know, even there were scenes of uh, them plundering the, the, the kind of gruesome scenes after the battle of them killing yeah. the, um, the, the, the mortally wounded Roman soldiers yeah. who were rise, rising up from the dead. Yeah. Their bot- and then yeah. going after them and slicing their throats and all that. And so they were just mopping up, I think. And, I don't, I don't know. I wonder. I wonder if there was a, any lieutenant. Do you never hear about? Well, you hear about Masdrabal or this Maharbal. Like I, you never see. Livy never reconstructs dialogues that go on inside the Carthaginian camp. Maybe there was some people uh, pleading with Hannibal to slow down a little bit or take a break. You know, reconsolidate yeah. their game, consolidate the gains. But yeah, and you know, I don't know if it's in Hannibal's military playbook to go to keep going. It yeah. wasn't like, a, wasn't Sean, like Alexander can, the Great. If I can toss in one other thing. It yeah. was interesting to me that the Romans churned through commanders every six months, um, you know, which is like, I don't know, if I think of that in modern times, that's like every two months in terms of the speed at which things moved, maybe even faster. Uh, whereas you know, Hannibal had been at this for years, um, you know, and so I think there, there is certainly a consistency of strategy that the Carthaginians benefited from, but there also may have been a, a fatigue, uh, you know, that got to them as well. 
Yeah. Can I make an observation to that point? And sure. That, that and then I'm going to call on Nan next. Um, but go ahead. Who, and who is that speaking again? This, I'm sorry. This is Ed barging in again. Okay. Yep. Um, the Carthaginian government does not seem to have exercised, at least from what we're getting from Livy, much control over the direction of the war and oversight over Hannibal's activities, certainly not as much as the Senate did over no. the uh, various Roman no. armies. Now, granted, there's a lot of distance and communication difficulties yeah. they've encountered doing that. But the impression I got is it just kind of turned Hannibal loose and said, go fight the Romans. Yeah. Or not even necessarily direct him to go fight the Romans, but just, you know, go win this war, which he did. Um, and you you sort of see that if you look at Mago's, the Mago-Hanno dialogues on page 148, 149. Okay, hang on a second. Thank you for bringing that up. But let's all turn. 148, 149. It really starts on 147. Okay. Can you read to us a little bit? Um, sure. Just as background, Hamilco is a member of the Barca faction, and he taunts Hanno, who is a member of, I would almost say, in, not so much an anti-war faction, but a somewhat more moderate, more moderate anti-war faction, the Carthaginian uh, Senate, yeah. saying, you know, are you still sorry that the war was started with Rome? Yeah. And Hanno just says, you know, I would normally would have remained silent today. Um, I mean, I'll just kind of skip through some of it because everyone can read faster than I can probably speak it. But um, he talks about what is this jubilation all about when you turn the page to 148, third paragraph down. I've wiped out enemy armies. Send me soldiers. How would your request be different if you had suffered defeat? And he sort of says, you know, what is this war bringing us? Are you bringing it to a conclusion? And that goes back to what we were talking about, where Hannibal seems to be making war for the sake of making war, because warring against Rome is what he does. Yeah. And I don't know what his end game is, whereas Rome is, I think, very obviously sees this as a fight for their survival. And they want Hannibal dead and ultimately Carthage put in a position where they can no longer trouble him. Yeah. I mean, and that's what I was wondering, um, and which is why I pointed it out in the first place, because, I mean, I remember reading about his motivations and the way he was raised, but his behavior after Kanai, I mean, that was the time to seize the moment. If that's what he really wanted, if his whole purpose of, of being there was to defeat Rome, how could he show such a lack of discipline? And, and just, I mean, I almost wondered, and especially given all the violence, like, if he just relished battle itself. <laughs> Well, there may be something to that, Therese. I, I also challenge you to consider it's not unusual in the course of human affairs for people to work long and hard for a goal and stop just short of it. Um, I mean, Sean was addressing that swim to the wall notion, but, um, you know, the, who knows what was in his mind, but there, um, it's not unusual. You know, um, it doesn't necessarily mean he didn't want it, but he was tired, as people pointed out. They had been campaigning for years. Um, there was plunder available right there. And and maybe, just maybe, and perhaps this is what you're getting to, he, he himself realized it might have been a crisis for him if he had gone on to sack Rome, because then what does he do? <laughs> right. <laughs> this whole 
his whole Andre, this is right. right. He, he loses of... animating purpose. Yeah, he might lose his animating purpose. Exactly. Yeah, hey, Nan, more. I think you tried to jump in earlier, right? No, no, I hadn't, no. but that's okay. <laughs> Why don't you jump in now? Tell us about, uh, you know, either the conversation we're having or a passage you'd like to highlight. Well, one passage that I liked, I mean, I just, I found it amusing, which is kind of hard to find amusing things in in this, but on page 86. The, the burning cows. <laughs> no, no, actually, when um, Fabius, when Fabius was recalled to Rome, and yeah. he was trying to convince his master of horse who wanted to fight and oh, yeah. didn't want to play yeah. this waiting game, not to, you know, to, to play the waiting game and tried to convince him and gave him personal advice of why it's important to rest. And, and then the, the last sentence of the paragraph was, but it served no purpose. I mean, it just, <laughs> it, it just, I just had this image of this poor guy being yeah. called back to Rome, knowing what was going to happen, and just pleading with his master of horse, knowing while he's doing it, it's for naught. And it's I, such I a great sentence, isn't it? Such was the yeah. advice Fabius gave the master of horse before he set off for Rome, but it served no purpose. Oh, um, yeah. And then the other thing I found interesting, um, and it kind of goes to what people are saying about Hannibal's motivations and just the war for the wars. When yeah. he was in the beginning again, he was doing all these attacks and raids, trying to draw them out into battle and kind of pushing their buttons. Um, it's, I don't remember exactly where it was, but it, it basically was saying like he's trying to push their buttons and trying to get them to react. Yes, yes that, was, that, that was, I think, that was... Um, just before the Battle of Cannae, if I remember correctly, he was trying to provoke Varro, mm -hmm. and he understood that Paulus and Varro were at odds with each other. Um, yeah, yeah. But what, I want to come back to that because Michael Blackman's not on the phone tonight, but he wrote, I think, something up for us to consider about the politics in Rome and the, the populares versus the optimates and um, how that plays out in some of the ways Livy writes most of Book 23, uh, 22, excuse me, up to uh, the Battle of Cannae. But um, but before we do that, I, I do want to I do want to point out uh, on, on the page right before the page you just brought us to. In other words, on page 85, we have this wild scene where Hannibal affects an escape. Uh, does anyone love this? Where he he basically tied twigs and stuff to the horns of these cows and then set them on fire. <laughs> I, mean, I thought it was cruel to the cows, but I was really, <laughs> I was, I don't know. I just thought with cows, you know, cause I think they even talk about burning skin or, or yeah, cows burning. And, and I just thought, yeah, it was cruel. I thought this, this guy is just like a sadist. I don't know. Well, the ASPCA would have something to say about this. We'd have to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was one of the things that struck me about the, the Battle of Cannae. I mean, most of Hannibal's uh, victories and battle plans seemed to resort to some sort of trickery along the way. There were ambushes. Yeah. There were there were valleys. There were there were cows with flaming horns. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, but the Battle of Cannae was just a, a straight-ahead slugfest, you know, where they just kind of stood and pounded on each other. Yeah, although they did employ a trick there too, didn't they? 
in Hannibal. Yeah, theoretically. Although I, I think there's, it, it, I'm wondering if it was intentional or not intentional. I mean, if you mass troops and charge them at at, at another line of troops, that troop that line will probably buckle a little bit in the middle. I mean, it, it's described yeah. as fully intentional, but I'm I don't know. I, I, I was a little skeptical about some of it. Uh huh. Well, right. Mm-hmm. And who knows? I mean, this is Livy writing a couple hundred years after right. the events, yeah. right? Um, so, yeah, it makes it at least for good writing. That's true. Yeah, thanks for a better story. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Pat, I wanted you to. Are you still with us, Mr. Wichter? I don't know if you. I, I know you're having some challenges am, today. But I have to say preemptively that I'm woefully prepared. I've just. I've not had um, to read. I've just been driving. Well, I just wanted plane, to feed so. you a line. Um, there is a line in the very beginning of book 22, Pat, that I thought you might enjoy. Uh, page 67, top of page 67. I think we're talking about are we talking about prodigies here? Yeah, we haven't talked about prodigies yet, right? <laughs> no. Um, so at the bottom of page mm-hmm. uh, 66, the last paragraph, fears were heightened by prodigy, prodigies that were simultaneously reported from several places. We got spears of soldiers that burst into flames, um, beaches lit up with fires, shields that are oozing blood. Uh, The sun's orb appeared to have grown smaller, burning stones from the sky. And then this is where I thought of you, Pat. At Arpy, shields had been set in the sky and the sun seemed to be fighting with the moon. (laughs) Love that image. (laughs) The sun was fighting with the moon. <laughs> and then two moons actually had arisen during the daytime. Yeah, the. These pro- the what did you guys think about the? <laughs> what what, what did you what think about these? Have to wonder what they were drinking at that point. No. Yeah. What time of year are we in? Because there are times when was it Venus and Mars are oh. visible in the yeah. sky. Yeah. So when I read that two moons appeared, I was thinking immediately of like the there are times when you can see other planets at the same Although time. Although remember, so they I, understood the planets. You know, the planet word planet means wanderer it comes from Greek. The Greeks had actually identified the planets as the stars that wandered across the sky. So mm-hmm. I'm guessing they would have, but it, but who knows? Maybe you're right. I don't know. Or maybe it was My a harvest part of that, This is Sean again. Was the uh, a hen turning into a cock and vice versa? <laughs> Just imagine a guy saying, "Yesterday I had a cock and a hen, and today I have a hen and a cock." It's crazy times. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty wild. Well, uh, the thing to remember that, about Tom? the prodigies is they probably ahead, had Tom. had and ha- had all the credibility of uh, the prodigies we read about on Facebook, right? I mean, we read about the weekly world news just as stupid, <laughs> but, but, you know, and that, and that people who should know better take seriously. So, you know, I, I don't, it's not that shocking, right? That, that some, some chucklehead says they saw it, it gets, the word gets passed around and suddenly policy is being made based on, you know, some idiot story. <laughs> and, and, but I'm not sure things are that much different today. So you, uh, Bill, are you? Oh, really? Okay, maybe you're right. 
know. Fair. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah. Who else haven't we heard from? Uh, wait, one other point about w- w- yeah. that that's related to the prodigy discussion, though, is the yeah. And, and Livy makes a point about the. I think it was Fabius and his 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 punctilious attention to religious ritual and in general the Romans were very very careful to observe yeah. all their religious obligations, which yeah. on one hand seems like God they have, don't they have better things more important things to be doing and oh you know, why yes. are they wa- it, yes Go why ahead. are they I'm wasting sorry. their time but then what what I was thinking about is there is there another purpose or benefit from the ritual, right? Is it really just a waste of time or are there benefits? If one of the things, points that Livy makes over and over and over again are the benefits of waiting, uh-huh. right? I mean, that's that's one of his Fair key enough. themes. Yeah. And observance of religious ritual is part of that theme of the benefit of just waiting. Uh-huh, that's interesting. You see it as a um, the thoughtful, um, you know, strategic we're going to you know make sure we we're not just going to run out there and uh, start attacking right right and and and, and, it, and and even if it isn't the intention yeah it does provide that benefit because you know again his Livy one of Livy's main points is that if the Romans had just waited out Hannibal they wouldn't have suffered all these losses right, right? that was the whole message of of the Kenai story so right. the religious observances may not, I'm just saying, may not be as foolish as they might seem on first, uh, you know, first on, on, the, on the surface. Well, let, let's talk about Michael Lackman's email. So um, remember, so Livy is writing this during the, essentially the fall of the Republic and the beginning of the, of the empire, right? So during the, during the civil wars, uh, between initially Caesar uh, and others, and then of course with uh, with Augustus and and so forth. Um, so Michael makes an important point, right? Which is that Livy's writing at that point, and there's so much going on in Book 22 leading up to Cannae, where Livy is essentially um, a, a, a reader, a Roman reader. During that period of time, at the end of the Republic, the beginning of the Empire, would have recognized um, so much of what was contemporary in terms of the tensions between the, the you know, sort of the populists, the populares, and the uh, and the optimates, the, the more conservative Senate folks, right? Um, so, if you pull up Michael's email. Um, you know, I mean, he 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 talks about he references Plato and a familiar tone of distrust around the impact of popular sentiment or mob rule, uh, and he, he goes on to talk a little bit there about Plato and, and Aristotle, um, and then this broader theme he says inhabits the discourse throughout the life of the Republic, um, and the, the tension between the optimates and, and the populares, and a theme that Livy's readership would have been plugged into the way. We would react to terms like red and blue states or the 99%, or Jim's bringing up uh, Trump, for example. So, I, you know, I don't know if you had a chance to look at Michael's email or go back and look at book 22. To, um, but let's talk a little bit about this point that he's making. Do you, do folks see what he's saying? And did, did you kind of experience, do you 
Uh, do you have a sense of what he's seen? Did, did you see it in a similar way? Anyone? I would. This is that again. I would say he's dead on the mark because particularly in Book 23, you see time and again where the Italian allied city-states have a difficulty between the people, if you will, the mob, and their Senate, yeah. their leaders. And the leaders will want to do one thing, but they fear the mob wants something else. Yeah. You know, because the mob is on the ground. They're the farmers. They're the people who are growing the livestock. They're the folks whose farms will be devastated by Hannibal if they don't yeah. somehow come to terms. Well, specifically, and, the, the ahead, consistently, yeah. the mob is anti-Roman. The mob wants to come to terms with Hannibal in, a, in mm -hmm. every case. Yeah, if Rome yeah. can't protect us, we have to protect ourselves, and the only way we can do that is to make terms. They're either anti-Roman, Bill, in the sense that you know they truly are. They're trying to make terms with Hannibal, or they're Romans in Livy who make rash decisions that endanger Rome. Security. Oh well, well, right. The Romans themselves have their own mob problem, but the the outside right. of Rome, the the it's always the the the, the democratic forces are the ones that always want to. Uh, abandon Rome and go with uh, Hannibal, but yeah, in Rome itself, the the mob has its own dynamic, which is which is rashness, right? I mean, that's well. And remember, most of those cities had been conquered by Rome previously. I mean, they're not Roman to start with, right? Good point. Right. Yep. To what degree, you know, I don't know if you guys want to go down this road for a moment, but we discussed this when we read Thucydides, because Thucydides, um, when I read Thucydides, I think it was probably the first time in my life that I felt my commitment to democracy, small d, was challenged in any kind of serious intellectual way. Um, Thucydides writing about the wars between Athens and Sparta, and he... he um, at points takes a very strong position against, you know, you know, he, he was really for an enlightened aristocracy, essentially running things. Um, and he had both personal and uh, arguably political and military reasons for that. When you read this in Livy and you think about the rashness that is presented to us here, does it, how, how does that affect the way you, the way you think about democracy? Um, are are you uh, do you find yourself essentially thinking well, an enlightened, uh, some form of an enlightened aristocracy, is uh, is is a better form of government, or do you do you reject that as uh, well un-American, for example? Um, wh how do you how do you think about this um, politically? I would say that the key term there is the word enlightenment. You know, what is enlightened and can everyone be enlightened? If they can't be, then yeah. those who are would be on the edge. In, I'm sorry, I missed the last part of what you said. Those who are what? Those who are, quote unquote, enlightened. I mean, assuming enlightened means knowledge. I guess what we refer to today is high information versus low information um, would seemingly have an edge in making difficult decisions, yeah. hard decisions, complex decisions. Um, the, the problem with democracy is information, democracy, and communication. 
Yeah, and I, and I think it's, a, it's an interesting topic. It's the difference between a democracy, a true democracy, and a representational democracy, which is something yeah. that our own founding fathers struggled with as well. And, um, right. um, you know, there's one thing that works on paper, and then there's another real politic aspect of it, too, where yeah. uh, a, a, a representational democracy turns into an oligarchy, um, which right. is not uncommon in our own country. Um, so it's... Uh, right. It's an interesting discussion, but uh, and, and uh, is that again, a good thing or a bad thing? Because some people would say oligarchy is good. I just want to make sure, you know, what, when you say it turns into an oligarchy, is that good or bad? Yeah, I, I'm not saying which it, which it is. I think it's almost just a natural expression of a division of labor, mental labor. Some ah, so does Plato's on... Republic in a sense. Yeah, some people are going to focus on certain areas, and others are going to focus on others. I mean, a you know, a yeah. blacksmith is going to focus on shoeing, and I don't know, a philosopher will focus on philosophy or more intellectual pursuits. Now, the one may have more time to analyze questions and consider various angles than others. Jim, what do you what do you think life. on this question? Well, <laughs> it's it's a it's it's a hard one to summarize because there's a, there's a lot of uh, aspects of of of, of truth yeah. and what was just said. I think what happens though is um is is the, the people in power uh, tend to stay high on the smell of their own perfume in a way and not <laughs> um, not 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 uh, you know they they, they pursue self interest. They don't pursue yeah. democratic interests. I think and I think that's human nature. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that it's uh, I do see the uh, and I understand the, the the worth of of some aspects of it, but I think human nature then intrudes and turns it into something uh, entirely selfish and different. Yeah, yeah. Bruce, what do you think? You um, with us, Bruce? Yeah, I'm yeah. here. Uh, I got. Uh, been so many answers I forget what the original question is <laughs> we were talking about the um, Livy's you know the way Livy sets up the tension between the the, the mob and the enlightened Senate you know oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and what that means for how we understand democracy you know what that's like to read Livy and how do we reflect on that today oh wow um, hmm. it's a small question <laughs> um, By the way, Bruce, do you and Jim Daly know each other? I'm guessing you guys do, right? The Jim Daly? Yeah. The Bruce? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Huge fan. I'm a huge fan. What I'm lacking is like a good context, like a background on the political. There was, a, there was a nice email exchange that we got today from a couple of yeah. readers um, about about the um, Aristoi and the demo, you know, the and the and the plebs and all that. Um, yeah. And I, and I guess there was a this was a turning point. Um, there were so many turning points between here and and then finally when when the republic was over. But I, I guess I mean I, the parallels to now, if, if I was drawing them, there's there's a certain amount of you know, the war without end, uh, Afghanistan, and it seems like Congress is, you know, if you, if you look at like the representational aspects of our, our say in the wars that have been going on 
in our country, you know, um, they don't, I don't feel like we have a say anymore over how many troops we send and when we pull them back. And, we, you know, it seems like the executive branch in Rome <laughs> was calling the shots. Uh-huh. And, and, and it seemed like they, 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 each consul having their own army was a chance for each leader to, I could be wrong about this, was a chance for them to make a name for themselves in a way that you don't see in, you know, in modern days, you know, where, yeah. where uh, it was like a political act um, going, I'm going to take this army, this, this army and go off to war. And I'm going to get relieved by, by, I, I, there's no way to fight a war. It seems to me like there's, <laughs> it's a pretty strange system. Every year you elect new councils and the generals are out and you got the new generals in. Right. And where do they keep getting more troops from? It seemed like, like everyone was already there. And they find another <laughs> five thousand people. Yeah, and the carnage well, is unbelievable course, too. We get to the point where they um, they purchase slaves, right? Eight thousand slaves after Cannae. Um, I mean, they, they start running out the, of sources. Yeah, yeah, they go for the seventeen-year-olds at one point. Yeah, seventeen-year-olds and slaves, and then they refuse to ransom the uh, the soldiers who had been captured at Cannae. Yeah, they have and their it, principles. It just yeah. to make this to make this even more unbelievable. They were also fighting a war in Gaul that they shelved in Book 23, but they also started the First Macedonian War during the Punic War. (laughs) (laughs) Why not, right? (laughs) The more the merrier. I'm sorry, go ahead. Strategic overreach. Strategic overreach. Run out of resources. Potentially, although with the Macedonian War, I have to say... You know, Philip was making nice with overtures Hannibal. with Hannibal. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there was some basis. It was, for that. There it was a defensive just, aspect to that. Yeah. yeah. But nonetheless, well, some, for, I'm sorry. Uh, oh, this is Harry. I just wanted to make the point that in, I think it was in book 24. Um, there was quite a bit of uh, a few paragraphs there talking about yeah. the resource constraints. They just they were running out of stuff. They ran out of money. They didn't have enough people. They, didn't have enough commanders. They didn't have enough people in the Senate. They were trying to scramble and try to fix it. And, you know, they didn't more have the armaments to supply Sicily. Right. The, the more irons you yeah. get in the fire, it's harder to manage it. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, small question, but uh, does everyone know where the word Punic comes from? I don't know if y'all looked that up or knew that. The, I, I had always wondered. I'd never figured it out, never looked, but um, it's, a, it's a Latin word meaning Phoenician. And, of course, the Carthaginians were a legacy of the Phoenicians. Um, so that was helpful. All right. Well, what else? So what else? Let's hear. A few. I don't know if anybody else was in the Aristophanes reading group, but when I was reading through this time, um, I was thinking of Lysistrata and the uh-huh. women, and I was yeah. just thinking how just even though that was a comedy, just how true it was, and how these you know all these men and boys are being killed, and who's left, and what's going to happen to the women, and and it just well, do you uh, remember? Do you remember what happened? She will be back shortly. Okay. One one of my I hesitate to use the word favorite, but um, one of the passages that I marked because I thought it was so okay. Wow, look at that. Um, 
Remember the Senate forbids women from appearing in public? I don't know if you remember this. Um, page 124. Let's see, where is it? Um, I'm going between my electronic and paper version here. Um, so let's see, they had to keep women from appearing in public, disturbances or panic. There it is, sort of three quarters of the way down the page. They had to keep women from appearing in public, compel them all to remain within their homes and place restrictions on family mourning. Um, that, that really feeds into what you're saying about uh, reminded, being reminded of Liz Estrada. Mm-hmm. <laughs> parallel with troops, well, troops, corpses being returned from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, no photography was permitted of them until just yeah. a couple of years ago. I mean, yeah. really not something that was publicized. And that's actually something that Putin is doing in Russia now with his casualties in Ukraine. Uh-huh. Interesting. No. Yeah, well, if you can't see them, then they didn't happen, right? There you go. Um, cool. What other what other passages captured your attention or what other questions or issues um, would you like to talk about? We did not talk about the Battle of Trasimene, um, which, you know, was one of the worst defeats until, of course, we got to the Battle of Cannae. Um, we didn't talk a lot about Flaminius. We, we brought him up relative to his speech about Varro um, and how Varro was out of control. Um, there, and we haven't really touched on Book 23. So anything else? Can I make a couple? Yeah. Comments about Varro and uh, Lucius? Um, sure. So I'm not sure how Livy kind of comes down on the on these big questions that we're asking. Um, yeah. But there, I saw some clues to the pairing up, you know, the, when you pair up Fabius and Minutius and after, you know, Minutius is the, seems to be a council that was elected by the plebs and yeah. he's, he's the, he's a hot-headed one and he's rash and, and yet he's talked out of going into the trap, um, partly by the, um, the omen with the chick, you know, they, they, uh, check this the chickens and um <laughs> chickens don't eat so so he he sort of talked out of it and it says because he's superstitious um he's seen some failures in the past so but any in any case minutius comes around you know he's and that's kind of what holds him in check i just wanted to kind of point that out about maybe the role of religion and the um yeah maybe, and as a representative of that class and then yeah. also with pharaoh i think we see something kind of similar where he's you know he's he pretty much causes the the, the defeat at Cana, right? I mean, in terms yeah, of being right. so yeah. wrestling in there, but um, but then he comes home to a kind of celebration. You know, they they sort of honor him when he gets home, and um, it doesn't necessarily mean that Libby agrees with that that honor. But I kind of I wonder where there's this pairing up of Pallas and Varro and of Fabius and Minutius. Um, if there's some sort of comment or something, some clues to the relationship between those two groups and almost accepting it as a political fact that you've got these, this is what makes up the political body and yeah. what's going to, you know, what's going to 
how how are we going to deal with that if we're going to and and in any in any case the the interesting thing where they were those are the two hotheads and they were the ones who were rash when it comes time i think it was the first um passage we discussed where uh where um hannibal is told by um marhabal i guess that he doesn't know how to use victory right yeah. so so he's in that case Hannibal could have learned something from the others in a sense, but, but I thought that was a very telling phrase that Hannibal doesn't really, you know, that idea of not knowing what to do with victory or not knowing what to do with the, the life at the end of that, that journey or the end of that battle. Um, he, you know, maybe there's, he, there's something he could learn from or something Hannibal could learn from Rome about, there's some, there's a kind of political life that's meaningful and that's beyond just constant battle. Although I guess Rome was kind of engaged in constant warfare too, but. Um, yeah, totally. Anyway, they were yeah, yeah. in those, yeah. in those uh, pairing pairings. And even well, don't, don't you think Livy had disdain? Of, of Hannibal and, don't you think Livy had disdain for the plebs and for the rash tendencies of. Disdain? Of. Yeah, disdain. Don't you think Livy was making well, a pretty strong statement? I, I know. Well, I, I, you know, I'm thinking of his audience, read his, read his original readers, and maybe yeah. recognizing not, not necessarily. Well, that there's, you know, the like Pallas is, is is a really decent. You know, he's sort of presented as a decent guy and a model. Yeah. You know, model citizen in a lot of ways, and, um, and. And Vero is con, you know, he's contrasted with that. And I, and yeah, I, I kind of, I think it, there may be some favoring, except that this is Vero and everyone else that all of his friends, <laughs> all the plebs are a, a reality to deal with. You know, that's, that's part of what you can't just have a, a society with just the patricians only got to share it. So yeah, I, I'm not sure yeah. if that's as, as harsh, you know, as it appears okay. at first. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, I'll share one more passage and then maybe we can talk about next steps. Um, page 99. Uh, where on page 99 is this? Um, first full paragraph, about a quarter of the way down the page, the paragraph that begins with this day of wavering fortunes. And then we get a speech from Minutius, who says, um, so this is the moment when, so just before this, in Rome, they had voted that Minutius and um, uh, Fabius would become co-counsels, essentially. And then Minutius gets his ass kicked by Hannibal, um, and uh, and he he decides to... um, to put himself as a subordinate to Hannibal. His men, I have often been told that the best man is he who gives helpful advice, that the man who accepts good advice stands next to him, and that the most inadequate man is he who cannot give advice but cannot accept it from another either. And I was wondering, people who know me well and know how much I'm interested in asking for help as a leadership discipline realize why I'm probably calling out this passage, but 
just wondering if you guys like that, what you thought about that passage. I felt it was pretty savvy on his part. I'm not sure that he was sincere in that because he was so boastful before. Um, But yes, I mean, it makes perfect sense, but it's also a way to ingratiate himself back into having some relevance in place next to Fabius. Yeah. Yeah. Well, any other thoughts that he could learn? Yeah. This is Harry. I think part of what what that is about is the inference that one should learn from one's experiences and those of others. And and if you're just going to be headstrong, well, you're just going to go whistling off down this path. God knows what will happen. Right. Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's business partner, has a famous speech he gave to a graduating class, a commencement speech called A Prescription for Misery in Life, um, which I highly recommend, by the way. And he outlines several things you can do to ensure that you will be very unhappy and, in fact, miserable. One of them is to... Um, is to learn only from your own mistakes and not from the mistakes or learnings of others. Um, And I think there's a a nice close parallel here to this passage. The only bone I have to pick is this notion that the best man is he who gives helpful advice. I think the best man is the one who both gives good advice and continues to ask for help because none of us can know everything that we need to know. (laughs) But otherwise, I... uh, I appreciated that passage and found it interesting. Um, all right, so so uh, Andre, do you um, do you want to add anything? You're uh, are you are you continuing well, to read in the Latin as, as we read in English here? <laughs> no, I told you I I, I started you know book twenty one yeah. and then it just you know I got bogged down. But yeah. um, I have to say that I'm glad you chose that passage because it it really is. It really is kind of a, a really thought-provoking passage. I really like it's that It's a great one. passage. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's something we all hope to see, you know, because we're all going to, yeah. you know, we're all going to be involved with folks. We're going to work with people, and, and some of us are going to fall down, and then we're going to hope that, you know, hey, you know, we can admit our weak, our weaknesses and then build on each other's strengths. But, um, yeah, yeah and, and, and as far as being headstrong, I just wanted to remember, I just remembered that, you know, when when the Romans, the aristocracy especially, are, are watching their estates get trampled, burned, plundered, and all that, you know, yeah, of course, some of them are really, really going to be, you know, very, what's the word, interested in stopping it, you know, as quickly yeah. as possible for their own self-interest. But once Rome starts to really put this personal self-interest of individuals aside and start looking at the grand strategy then they can match, you know, Hannibal's uh, uh, own strategy. And, and that's just that's just what I've started to see, uh, this, yeah. this go-around, you know. And they're starting to get there a little bit. But at first, it was kind of like, you know, in this, the American Civil War, it's like, well, there they are across the Potomac. Let's go get them, you know. And it's like, why are we getting them here? Why, you know, what's the overall strategy? And um, we didn't have it for a while, you know. At least the Union didn't. It seemed to. Uh, but, it's interesting uh, because in, in reading some of this, it, it did recall the American Civil War to me, and that you had this series of political generals being sort of thrown at a very determined and, and, and headstrong and, and inspirational 
uh, leader on the other side, you know, which was Robert E. Lee. And, um, yeah. and you know, yeah. uh, the union, you had one political general after another for until you, you got to Grant, who basically just ground him down at the end. Yeah, um, that's a great parallel. I frankly hadn't considered that, but you're actually really right. You're, you're you're really right. All right, good. So are we ready to move on to the next books? Um, you know, Andre, your your preview of of the Romans finally discovering their selflessness and strategy, I think, is a good one for what's coming next. This is, um, uh, this, I'm sorry, there's one. I'm sorry, don't sure. worry. I maybe just got addressed. One thing yeah. I didn't understand about the Battle of Tanai, if the Romans had more soldiers, how is it possible for the Carthaginians to surround them in the center? It's a little hard to hear you, Scott. You said if they had sorry, soldiers, how was it according, possible? According to the, the Romans have 87,000 soldiers. Yeah. And the Carthaginians have about 60. And there's cavalry facing each other, I think, on both wings. And then there's infantry yeah. in the center. Yeah. And the Roman infantry, you know, moves forward and, and defeats the Spaniards and the the Spaniards and the Gauls in the middle, and then yeah. they're surrounded by the Africans on either side. Yeah. And it's sort of like you mathematically, how is that possible? I know that the Roman formation is described as dense, but I don't know if anyone's like looked at the battlefield or anything like that and tried to figure out how that could happen. Interesting question. Has anyone done that? I I just want well, to say the numbers. Don't they say the numbers are exaggerated lots of times too of the number of people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you you got to remember that the Romans lost a lot of their veterans in the first few battles, and now they've got a lot of green troops that are you know they just don't have the experience and the. Uh, Intuitiveness, you know, they get easy, they're more easily intimidated, and I think Hannibal, Hannibal's people were all veterans, so it could happen. I think. I mean, yeah, you know, in a sense, a mathematical point of view, right? Which is, if how do you surround the Romans if the Romans have that many more soldiers? Well, I don't know. We'd have to. Oh, I mean, also uh, the the Carthaginian cavalry overpowered the Roman cavalry, so therefore yeah. any holes that the Carthaginians had in trying to surround these guys were covered by the cavalry who could move and easily block them. That, that's, that's a good point. Again, that's just my my. That, that makes sense. Yeah. 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 No, it does. And yeah. I mean, you know, it, it it has sort of been possible, right? Because it happened, but I just have a hard time seeing how it was possible. Yeah. Yeah. Other, you know, the thing about, I mean, you know, somebody pointed out, and it seems like a very Hey, Scott, point, but, you know, you're a little Romans, fuzzy. I don't uh, know if you're on a speakerphone or I forget. Last time me? this might have happened. Yeah, it was hard to hear you. You're not so clear. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I, That's better. Thought, this isn't that great a point. So let me just make it quickly and stop. But um, we've probably, some of you have seen this famous graph that some Frenchmen made <laughs> in the 19th century of Napoleon's invasion of Russia, and it shows the army getting smaller as the the army sort of wastes away. And, you know, even before the winter came, most of the soldiers in Napoleon's army were gone because armies just got, you know, armies just got ground down that quickly, not even by fighting, but just by being out in the field. Um, and, you know, getting sick, deserting, you know, dying, whatever. And, you know, you, so I, I've always sort of wondered how, you know, how veteran 
Hannibal's army really could have been if he would have had to been constantly replacing soldiers just you know just from sheer wastage. But you know, it's, it's sort of an unanswerable question. So yeah. Well, w- one thing that struck me very much about when I as I read this, it it seems like Hannibal had had read Sun Tzu. He he follows Sun Tzu. He he number one intelligence is very important to him. He wants to know what the other commander is thinking, more so than it seems the Romans did. And then he used deception constantly, and he used geography to his advantage and to their great disadvantage. And and then he outmaneuvered them. I mean, so you could win outnumbered with that kind of uh, recipe. Yeah. 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 Caesar does it all the time, too. Yeah, he yeah sure the does. Germans in World War One, they fought the Russians and they were outnumbered. Oh, they were way outnumbered, and they beat the Russians in detail. Russia collapsed as a result. You you can do it, but you got to outmaneuver them. You have to know what they're thinking as best you can. The intelligence piece, and then you, and deception is huge, and and cannibals a master of deception. Mm, yeah, you know the Romans. We've talked about this before. You know the different. Uh, reading groups when we've read Homer. The Romans didn't really like Odysseus very much because the Romans the Romans didn't... Um, th- there was a sort of a moral position they had about trickery. Of course, Caesar was quite willing to use it, but um, <laughs> <laughs> in general, there was... There was, you know, and so I, I keep thinking about Odysseus as we read about Hannibal, by the way, and the conflicted relationship the Romans have to that. You know, for the Greeks, Odysseus was a hero. He outsmarted all these people. For the Romans, it's almost like almost dishonorable the way Odysseus uh, acted. And I think something possibly similar here. Right. I was just going to ask if the Greeks actually thought of Odysseus as an unvarnished hero or if they recognized him as a very flawed individual. Oh, they, they really they they certainly respected his intelligence and trickery. Um, Absolutely, his connivingness, if you will. They loved that. Yeah, that that was yeah. a good thing. That was not a conflicted thing for the Greeks. Um, yeah. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. This was a this was another evening well spent with friends talking about a great text. Um, Let's see. We're going to meet again in approximately a month. Um, and we will, I think we're going to be reading the next two books, if I recall correctly, right? Um, so we'll read 24 and 25. So um, I guess up to page 309 or something like that. And um, and keep the emails going. Um, I think Michael Lackman will be with us for the next call, so that'll be good. And... Um, um, if anyone hasn't sent an introduction yet over email, please do so. And I think that's it. Well, just uh, one more comment I found interesting was one of the questions we had in um, after our first call was about how people have they communicated with each other. Oh yeah. And I don't know if anybody else oh, yes. picked it up, yes. but I was reading I it did. and it, they mentioned yes. the tran- like his translator or something, and so I just yes. thought that and was the confusion between the two cities and how they ended up going to the wrong place because Hannibal. Diet, you know, Hannibal's accent was not understandable or something. Yeah, yeah, but they they mentioned his translator. He had a tra- you know, his translator yeah. told them what they said, and 
And I just thought, oh, we, we were talking about that, and it actually mentions it. So. Yeah, yeah. I meant to bring that up. Thank you for doing so. Yeah. But he got the city wrong, the translator, didn't he? And <laughs> was flogged or something. Or... I think it was Hannibal misheard it, actually. Oh, he misheard it. Because it was like Casaleum and Casanum or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not just flogged, but crucified. Oh. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. So then he crucified yeah. him exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> and it's my fault, but I'm going to kill you for it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, to be a dictator. Yeah. Uh, nice work or, if you can get it, I guess. Yeah. It's like. <laughs> All right. Well, have a happy Halloween, everyone. <laughs> All right. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Nice. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. The organizer has disconnected, and this conference